My name is Scoot. Welcome to Scoot Talk Sports Episode 2. I'm really excited about uh, where this show is going and the people that we brought on today. It's going to be a really, really fun conversation. Today we're going to be talking to two guests, a little bit of a roundtable format. We're going to be breaking down the Canadian, uh, excuse me, the Canada-US Gold Cup game yesterday that occurred. A really tough loss for Canada and, a, and truly an impressive win for the States. Um, so I brought in Benedict Rose. He's an aspiring journalism student who's also covering uh, the Canadian national men's team, the women's team, and as well as interning with the Canadian Premier League. So really excited to bring him on. Uh, Tobes Laroni, we're going to call him Tobes for the sake of it. Uh, he's a United States men's national team nutbag. He's a statistical whiz. And uh, I thought it would be really interesting to bring these two folks on for a segment and have a little bit of a chat about the game yesterday. Uh, and then we'll move into a segment with a friend of mine, Dan. We're going to talk a little bit about the Blackhawks, the sexual assault scandal that's going on there, and maybe touch on a bit of the expansion draft in the NHL um, if we if we get time for it. So thank you so much again for everybody who's uh, been following along on stream, uh, watching the show live on Twitch here, Mondays and Fridays at 12 p.m. Central Time. We do record the podcast live here, and it's a little bit of fun. We try to bring the, the chat in a little bit here and there. And the uh, the really interesting part is me learning kind of how to edit. So as you're listening to these episodes, as you're watching these episodes, if you have a suggestion, you have an idea, a topic, a guest, uh, just as being shouted out in there, uh, we would we would love to bring you on. And Jeffrey, I just haven't had a chance to reach out to you yet. So it's on the list. It's definitely on the list. So appreciate everybody who's jumped in. Um, but without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring in our first two guests here. For a bit of a conversation around the gold cup match yesterday uh for those who watched it feel free to jump in and, and drop any questions you have i'll be uh, trying to bring in the questions for the guys uh when appropriate so appreciate again everyone listening along everybody watching along and uh, thank you for being here so any further ado let's bring in the two gentlemen here we have tobes and benedict How's it going, happy guys? to be here Thanks very much for being here, guys. I really do appreciate uh, you guys taking the time today. And and also for, you know, moving along with me as we learn a bit about the platform, a little bit about what I'm doing with the show in general. So thank you very much for being here, guys. I've been a journalism student. Uh, you're also uh, interning with the Canadian Premier League, and you've been covering the Canadian national teams for quite some time, I believe. Uh, is there anything that I missed out in there? Anything that I should uh, add, Benedict? Uh, no, not really. That's kind of the situation I'm in at the moment. Uh, getting, I'm currently on loan at the Canadian Premier League. I'll be heading back to Wake in the Red in August. Looking forward to going back there and continuing to cover the national teams there as well. Just you see Jeffrey in the chat here. Shout out, shout out to Jeffrey and, and the Wake in the Red guys as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Wake in the Red, if you guys don't know, is a, is a really well-established uh I mean, group of journalists, group of fans that have been, uh, been writing all sorts of coverage on the Canadian national teams and players across uh, the country. Tobes, I introduced you as sort of a statistical numbers whiz, a little mm -hmm. bit of a, a United States uh, uh, soccer nut. Is there anything that I should add to that? Or is that sort of summarize, uh, summarize you? Um, that, that pretty much does it. I've just been a fan of the, the men's and women's national teams here for uh, since, I guess, the 2010 World Cup when I was... And I think I graduated middle school the day we played against Algeria. Um, so the fandom has slowly grown over time. Um, and it's been fun to see, you know, it as kind of actually start to build a program and produce top level prospects that we haven't really ever done before. Um, so to kind of follow that growth has been really exciting. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for being here, guys. Um, so 
we want to talk primarily around the game yesterday, and I'm assuming both of you guys had a you know a, a time watching it. It was uh, <laughs> certainly got started quick. Uh, I think quicker than any of us really realized. But before we get into the game itself, um, you know, what were you thinking about before the game? What were your concerns? Did you, did you were you excited for this game, um, or with the chosen selection, with all the different tournaments going on, you know, with some guys being rested? How did you feel before the game? I'll start with you, Benedict. Yeah, I think something we haven't been able to say a lot over the past uh, past decades, I guess, um, is looking forward to playing against the United States now. I think Canada doesn't want to be seen as like the little brother anymore, the third to keep. Oh, I think we lost Benedict there. Are you back? Oh, did I cut out there? Yeah, cut out there. There we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. So you're yeah, saying Canada it's a... Want to be seen as like... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Canada doesn't want to be seen as like the little brother to the United States anymore. And, and it's exciting now that they, they have the ambition and, and the players, I think, to be able to beat the United States and at least be competitive with them. And uh, so entering a game against them optimistic as well is, is obviously a, a huge uh, bonus. What did you think, Toes? What were you looking for? What were you thinking before the game started? Um, I, I was excited... Well, coming into the tournament, I was really excited to see, you know, a lot of the players on the U.S. roster here are are depth pieces who are trying to fight their way into the top 23. I think right now there's maybe five players that are actually in the top 23, but it's the players right below that, a lot of the young guys with the high potential that were going to be in this roster. And coming into the tournament, I was really excited to see, like, can they do anything against Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David? Unfortunately, neither of those players ended up being here. So, so. As exciting as the game was from a U.S. versus Canada perspective, I don't think either side will come into World Cup qualifying next month and say, or two months from now, and say this game was representative of what's going to happen. I, I think it's going to be a very different teams playing against each other in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And for myself, I mean, I, I think I would have to echo a little bit of what Benedict said. I mean, we're in game, we, we're in these opportunities now where we get to be excited about any possibility in these games. We have the type of players, and then the the, the uh, the strength and quality now to think, you know, hey, we're not just going to try and go for a draw here. I'm not just thinking about trying to steal a point. You know, there's the opportunity to take all three. There's the opportunity to think that we could play, um, you know, a, a little bit more of an exciting style of football, uh, of soccer, right? So it was, uh, I'm not going to belie, I was a little bit nervous, just just given on the fact that, you know, Canada-US games, whether what any sport for me, I'm always excited, I'm always a little bit nervous, because it means more sometimes to me than I think the game means to the players, uh, in the sense that, you know, we weren't really fighting for, um, you know, moving into the next round, that was already done. We were, we were, we knew we were going into the next phase, it was more of a bragging rights, who won the group. And of course, whenever Canada, you know, has the opportunity to to beat the states, like we saw in the nation Nations League in 2019, I mean, Tobes, you you remember? I was I was living through that win for what a few weeks after that, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then and then of course we went down to Florida, faced the same squad, and lost four one. Right, so it was one of those things where. Um, you know, that 4-1 loss, very minimal in my mind. And then that <laughs> win is just like fills up the brain, right? That's how it is, though, for yeah, everyone. Exactly. So in terms of the, the game, what would you guys think of the the starters, the selection um, for that game? Tobes, I'll start with you. Was there anything that stood out for you from the American side of things? Yeah, I, I was. It was interesting because I had been calling for him to play a 3-5-2. Um, which he ended up doing. And I was, I was happy with that initially because the roster really only had one true winger, Paul Areola, who went out injured in the first game. 
So with no wingers, I was really hoping he would move away from his 4-3-3 or 3-4-3. And he did. He went with the 3-5-2. But that was about where my happiness ended. Uh, because he, the two best players in our previous game against Martinique were Matthew Hoppy, um, you know, striker at Schalke, who you know scored a Bundesliga hat trick this season, and Eric Williamson, uh, you know, a creative attacking midfielder for the Portland Timbers. I'm hoping he gets a move to Europe. And both of them were left on the bench. Hoppy came on in the 76th minute, and Williamson never came on. So I was worried as soon as I saw the lineup that we were not going to be able to have any sort of creative attacking outlet, and our midfield was just going to be people who like to pass backwards. What were your thoughts on the, the the picks for Canada, Benedict? What was your first you know thoughts when you saw the roster revealed? Yeah, I think the big standout was Iowa Canola playing against the United States. There's obviously some bragging rights there as well. I guess he finally chose Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, he came off pretty early in that game. Um, but uh, he, he did look good for the whatever, 20 minutes, was it, that he was on the pitch. Um, Tejon Buchanan's been Canada's best player in the tournament, I think, and, and he was really good as well on that left-hand side. And uh, the back three was always going to be interesting to see how they played that out. And, and that's what Herman went for, and I think it was pretty effective. What did you think of the, the midfield choices? Like it, it seemed to me like they were going for kind of a ball-winning midfield, really wanting to ensure they locked it down and played sort of a tight, tough um, midfield player. Did you kind of agree with what that what you saw as well? Yeah, I'd say so. I think they, they missed Stefan Eustachio in that game. I think they needed sort of a, a midfielder to sort of unlock the defense a bit more. Uh, Junior Hoyler played kind of in that 10 role. Uh, I think I think having someone a bit deeper behind him would have been would have been good. Obviously, Eustachio was suspended for that game. Can't do much about that. But uh, I, thought, I thought Piet and Fraser were really good. Yeah. Any thoughts on uh, Tobes? Any thoughts on the Canadian the lineup, the, the tactical choices there? Did you think that they made the right choices against your lineup? Or was there anything that shocked you? Um, I think a lot of it made sense. I know Mark Anthony Tay started on the bench. Uh, if I remember correctly, he was on a yellow card. So I think Canada didn't, you know, as much as this game felt like it mattered to us, we're both going to the quarterfinals. Why well, get Mark Anthony Tay suspended? Eustachia was already suspended. Um, so I was, you know, none of it seemed too surprising to me. I was interested to see what side um, Tejon Buchanan was going to play on. And he actually kind of played on both. It seemed like he started um, on the against going up against Jack Moore on the left-hand side for Canada. And then about the 30-minute mark, which is also when I thought the game kind of shifted. But we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Um, he shifted over and went up against Sam Bynes. What about you, Bennett? Did you see anything shocking or a little bit surprising from the American lineup in your eyes? Um, I, well, I think I was excited to see Busio in the center midfield. I thought he was he was very good. Um, also, the, the double striker of Zardes and, and DK wasn't necessarily unexpected. I, I just don't know if they were used the most effectively. It seemed like a lot of the time the Americans were kind of just – Booting the ball down the field, kind of hoping the best, and I think that played very well into Canada's hands in the end. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so let's get right to the a little bit of the elephant into the room, and that would be the first twenty seconds of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we're sitting down. I, I, for those who were with us yesterday, we did a little bit of a watch along on the channel, and I'm sitting there with a friend of mine from overseas who's absolute neutral, and I'm getting ready for this epic battle. And twenty <laughs> seconds in, we see Canada absolutely collapse into an extremely narrow extremely narrow formation which allows for this pass to go right across the box and and, and you know america to take the the early one nil lead i'll start with you benedict what was the your first reaction in that to, to that goal and the start for canada I'll, I'll be honest i missed the goal i thought i'll just go get a <laughs> bottle of water or something just as much in the first minute and then of course they score um you mentioned they're they're pretty narrow 
I think Tejon Buchanan sort of held his hands up after the game and, and sort of uh, took some some fault, I guess, for not marking Shaq Moore at the back post. And uh, strong starts has been kind of a problem for Canada, and uh, and they're punished for that again. Yeah, and it 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 really just looked to me like the Americans came out absolutely amped, like they just came out. Like you think of a wind up car, they were fully wound. The Canadians needed a bit more uh, winding before they started the game. Tobes. Obviously, you must have been shocked and happy with that start. But what did you think? What, what was your what was your takeaway from that that moment? Was it truly Canada just was not ready to go? Yeah, I think it was that. I think that the United States in against Haiti too. We scored in the eighth minute and then proceeded to kind of get. I mean, not really dominated against Haiti, but play a very 50-50 game the rest of the way out. Whereas this game, you know, we scored in the first twenty seconds, kind of caught Canada sleep. I think Canada also conceded pretty early to Martinique, a similar mistake. Um, but then, you know, after the water break at 30 minutes, the, the, the same thing happened against Haiti. I think it's you're always very good to capitalize on your strength of getting ahead early. Um, but I'm sure as we'll get to later, it did not stay that way. Yes. And that's that's kind of the next segment. I wanted to talk a bit about the tactical changes we saw in that game. Because it was, you know, it was interesting to see the changes uh, being made, at, especially for, for Canada, right at that kind of 20 to 30 minute mark. And then again, uh, you know, the Americans came out, I thought, in a little bit of a different formation, a little bit different feel in the second half. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Canadian tactics to start. And I think you kind of alluded to it there. Uh, both of you actually alluded to it, where we saw a change in terms of which side the wingers or those those outside players were playing. And we saw what I saw. And again, I, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm still an amateur. I'm still a fan. I, I don't see everything maybe the way that your tuned eyes do. But I saw a lot more interest in cutting into the middle and taking a shot and looking for options from Canada once they switch those guys on the sides. Uh, Benedict, I'll start with you. What did you see from that tactical change early around 20 to 30 minutes? And, and what did you think it did for Canada? I think it was partly brought about Nola um, and uh, bringing on Jonathan Osorio, Canada were kind of forced to maybe go a little bit more wide, whereas with Akinola, they probably could have gone a bit more route one, I guess, if people call it down the middle. The football manager term, is, as I know you guys like. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think Tejon Buchanan and, and Richie Laie on either side were kind of uh, playing a few more crosses than they maybe were anticipating earlier in, in the game. What did you think, Tobes, from the Canadian the Canadian changes? What did it make America like the American team have to do? What did they have to do to adjust in that first half? Well, the, the thing I've been most critical about Gre of Greg Berhalter is his in-game management. And I think it was pretty clear Canada made some changes at the 20, 30 minute mark that, you know, obviously they moved Tage onto the other side. Um, Akinola came off that, that, you know, switched with the midfield a little bit um, with Osorio coming on. But I, th I thought the biggest actual change that affected the game the most was that Canada figured out how to press together as a team. I think the first 20 minutes they didn't, they weren't cohesive. They weren't pressing at the right times, always kind of leaving an open man. But I think at 20, 20, 30 minutes marks, you know, they had that hydration break. It seemed like they came out of the hydration break. The coach had told them, when this happens, you press here, you press here. And we could not escape our own half after that for the rest of the half. Well, like 15 minutes, I was sitting there going like, you know, it doesn't matter if Miles Robinson's winning the ball off Tejon Buchanan because he passes to our left back and then there's 10 people and no one's open and we no one's being creative off the ball and we just get the ball right back. And it just felt like an onslaught of the 15 minutes of pressure for the until halftime. Yeah, I would agree. I think I saw a lot of... Uh much better control whereas that first 15 to 20 minutes there seemed to be always a couple of options for every american player mm -hmm. they seemed 
comfortable. They seemed unconcerned with the Canadian defenders or the pressure. There just doesn't didn't seem to be enough to to really keep those guys um, on their toes or feeling like they were were having to make a, a play. I think there was even times where, you know, I was seeing some of the Canadian forwards, uh, and I I can't remember who, but they were kind of walking up. I would say about six feet away and then slowing down. They weren't exe- executing that, that pressure all the way up. Like they were afraid of what that player mm-hmm. might do. Um, and I don't know if that's a pre- you know, just a preparation thing, or maybe they were, they were thinking they would play in a different way, or they were just trying to play more cautious and give them more space. Um, the halftime, once the halftime came along, I think we saw some changes from, from the Americans and the way they played from my under- from the way I saw it, it really looked like they moved to a much more structured almost a five back kind of setup. What did you see there, Tobes? Yeah, so we were playing kind of with a five back from the start, but it would get confusing because James Sands was playing in the center of that five back as if, I mean, if this was FM, he was Libero on attack. When we had the ball, he would he would step forward to the midfield as like a six, as a DM, and start spraying passes. And then in the second half, when we barely touched the ball, I think it became much more evident that when we did not have possession, we were sitting with the five back. James Sands was in the center of that. Um and I think it was more just the lack of possession, the fact that the U.S. never had the ball, that it became much more clear that we weren't kind of shifting between a four-four-two diamond and a five-three-two. It was very much five back, three center midfielders, and then the two up top. And that was kind of another one of the problems was that the two up top coming in the second half, neither of them would really drop at all, whether we had the ball or not. It just felt like two guys sitting up there. So our three midfielders could not handle you know, the overload from Canada. I think it was a 4v3 the whole time. There was always someone open. And that was, you know, not great. So you would have liked probably to see those two forwards drop deep. I mean, maybe not as deep as a cane for the for England in the Euros, but something mm-hmm. along those lines where he's dropping back into the midfield. At, at least one of them. And, and that was the problem with this team selection, I thought, because Zardes and DK are both not that. They both want to press the back line, try to go over the top, out-muscle people. And, and they both want to do that. So when we get the ball and there's two people running at, you know, the same person in the same space, whereas I would have liked to see Matthew Hoppy as the other striker because he's able to come deep, find those pockets of space and relieve the pressure. What did you think, Benedict, in terms of in terms of the way that that, that was seen? Did you did you feel like um, that five back served the Americans well or did you think that it really was Canada's ball to, to win in that second half? Yeah, I think, um, as Tobes mentioned with the two strikers, I think they sort of invited a lot of pressure to the American midfield, and that sort of allowed, uh, like, Canada to put it like a 3-4-3, and I think that sort of midfield triangle for Canada sort of had a lot of free reign against the Americans, and uh, I definitely think that was probably not by design for, for Greg Berhalter, but uh, by not having one of Zardes or, or DK drop back, it was just, it was just an extra space for, for a Canadian midfielder to push forward a little bit and to control more of the ball. Here's a question for you. We all saw the uh, the the almost pens that were called in a couple of that that were not called, excuse me, during that game. But we we obviously heard on the Canadian co- the commentary on one soccer, they made it kind of a big deal out of the the. Uh, I'm trying to remember the center the center back's name from the states who kind of Walker Zimmerman. <laughs> Walker Zimmerman. Thank you. So that that play generated a lot of discussion on the Canadian side of things. Absolutely. Um, what did you think? Benedict, did you think it was a penalty? Did you think that was something that should have been called? Um, given that we have VAR in this tournament, was it something they could have should have gone upstairs and maybe had a more of a conversation or a look at? I, I think it was a penalty. I think uh, Richie Lye is so good at running in behind the defenders and, and drawing penalties and, 
and Walker Zimmerman not only tripped him at the edge of the box, but also him, uh, touched it with his hand when he went down. Like Walker Zimmerman was, ne was never fouled in that situation, but he reached down and touched the ball. So that, that's me asked two penalties, and, and neither one was called. And I think I think VR probably should have had a look at that. Here's a question for you before we let Tobes jump in, of course, because I know there's going to be another opinion here. But did, did you think that that was a soft penalty? Like it was a, it was something that should be called, but it was relatively soft? Or was it something that you felt was like, hey, that's egregious. Why wasn't it called? Yeah, that goes I, think to you, borderline. I think it is borderline. I think if, if he hadn't touched the ball with his hand when he went down, I, I would have been less sure that it was a penalty. Um, but I, I do think it was probably like a, 51-49 kind of situation towards being a penalty, I'd say. Tobes, what were your what are your thoughts? Did you did you see a penalty there? Or were were you were you seeing something a little bit different? Well, I'm going to start by saying that whatever it was, it was awful refereeing. Like the <laughs> there's no way that the outcome of that play is a Canadian corner kick. There's absolutely like the ball doesn't even go out of bounds. There's no way it's <laughs> you can't call a corner kick. So the discussion that was happening on the American broadcast is that. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the fullback's name. It's like now I'm gonna try and screw up his name, so I'll let Benedict do it because he just he just clarified how to to say his name. Yeah, I think he wants to go by Richie Laye. Laye, okay, Richie Laye. So he clearly gets around Zimmerman. Um, from the you know the American homers who are saying it's never pinned. Their their claim is that um Richie Laye kind of shoves Walker Zimmerman to get him off balance. So it's a foul on against Richie Laye to get. But if you don't call that foul, which the referee didn't. Walker Zimmerman proceeds to tackle Richie Laye and then hand the ball in the box. So if that's not a foul, then it's clearly a penalty. And then it gets called for a corner and no one looks at it. And you're just like, this is, this is, ter it's terrible refereeing no matter what you think happens. I think it was a penalty. I don't think the shove on Walker Zimmerman knocked him off balance. So I think he kind of tripped. I think Walker Zimmerman kind of tripped, fell onto the guy and the ball and handed the ball. I think it should have been a penalty. Yeah, I think if I'm, I, I tried my best to just be as, as, <laughs> as least biased as possible when I was watching. But my first reaction was, whoa, because when I saw the stumble, like obviously there was a little bit of a push by mm -hmm. Lai, uh, just to kind of, as they're battling, they're square, they're shoulder yeah, to square. Yeah, it's like shoulder so to shoulder like, contact. It's shoulder to shoulder contact. So I, I immediately I go, yeah, there's a push. But at the same time, that's the type of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder battle that we're going to want mm -hmm. and expect in those spaces. But what I thought, and maybe it's because... I don't know. But the point is, I think he could have regained his balance. And I think he played the balance falling. I think he kind of dived forward. And that's yeah, where I go. That's where <laughs> he, I go, he hey. <laughs> right? I, I think it was. I think it could have been a penalty. But I think the most weird, like the weirdest thing that came out of that absolutely was, how did it become a corner? Like, it's nonsense. <laughs> there was a number I, of I ways. Find, I, I wouldn't find if they just didn't, didn't call anything. Like, I think it, it's either a penalty or it's just, just play on, I think. Like, I didn't, I didn't even see the ball go out of bounds. I'm not sure it was a corner kick. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, think it, the ball ever went out of bounds. I, I remember watching the replays and just seeing Walker Zimmerman fall on the ball, and then he's injured, so the trainers come out, and the ball's just, like, sitting there in bounds. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was one of those situations where I, I, was, I was sort of expecting VAR to come into play. I was expecting there to be a little bit – like, I didn't Something. see it. Maybe they did go upstairs, and maybe I, I we didn't see it. But I never saw him seem to have that conversation and say, hang on a second, like, I'm mm -hmm. going to – I think yep. if it had gone to VAR, it would have been a penalty. But you know what? At the same time, this is CONCACAF. We're familiar with what type of uh, officiating consistency we get game to yeah. game. It's, um, it's I'll... frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I'll clarify again that I do think that one was a penalty. And also that CONCACAF 
officiating is traditionally terrible. But this game was odd even more than that because it's usually traditionally terrible in the sense that they don't, they refuse to call fouls that are clear fouls. I remember watching even Canada against Haiti for World Cup qualification. Alfonso Davies is getting like tackled. They're trying to break his ankles and they just, the CONCACAF players just don't call fouls. In this game, it was weird because 80% of the time people would foul people and they wouldn't call it. And then the other 20% of the time, there'd be like shoulder to shoulder contact between DK and a center back and the ref would blow his whistle and just point a direction. Like, like flipping a coin. It felt like even worse than normal refereeing, and it went against Canada most of the time, I would say. Are you shocked by this kind of conversation, though, Bennett? I know you've been covering, you know, the Canadian <laughs> national teams for a long time. Are you shocked by these kinds of conversations happening again and again? Like, it just seems to be something we, as fans, you know, as, as pundits, as journalists, you know, we don't really know what that consistency is so from game to game it sometimes is a little bit hard to judge what, what do you what are your thoughts benedict it's just another day in concacaf isn't it i think like you never know what to predict with concacaf it's just so unexpected or expected unexpected what's saying but i don't know <laughs> i don't even know how to analyze refereeing in concacaf anymore yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it's a variable in the game, almost a little bit of a wild card that we just we just have to deal with as part of part of being fans in this in this part. And I'm seeing some fantastic conversation, little little drops in here. Jeffrey, it was a pen, no question. And uh, Kane, you know, making a little bit of a joke. The ref we deserved, you know. It, <laughs> it was it was one of those games where I wasn't completely distracted by the officiating. It didn't. It really interrupt the game from a really drastic point, but there was calls there where it just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, moving on, here's a thought because <laughs> we could talk about can oh, yeah. officiating <laughs> we <could> forever. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's 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 uh, it's a it's a part of the fun in, the, in in this side, right? But what stood out for you in the game? For me, like if I wanted to say what stood out for me, I I, I really think um, you know Canada's switch. Moving the wingers to the opposite side was the change for me. Um, obviously, Canada really had trouble getting the ball into the box, but that final 30 minutes or so, it just seemed to be the same. Canada controlling the ball, feeling comfortable, moving it back left and right, moving it to the outside, but really struggling to get it into the box. Um, but I was happy with that. Like It's one of those things where we lost, you know, and I'm feeling it's upsetting that we lost, but at the same time, the way we played after going down 1-0 so early making tactical changes that really did seem to change the favor of play, the momentum back to our side, and then to retain that kind of possession uh, and that momentum throughout till the end of the game, unfortunately not being rewarded for it. But I was impressed with that change. Uh, Tobes, what was your thoughts at the end of that, at the end of that game? Did you feel yeah, so, a little bit different than me, obviously? Yeah. So <laughs> as an American fan, I was less familiar with Tejon Buchanan. Obviously I've been hearing that he was, you know, that Canada's best player in this tournament. And when I was disappointed that I wasn't going to get to see Alfonso Davies or Jonathan David and, and try to see how our, you know, fourth and fifth best kind of depth center backs and wing backs would try to be able to handle him. Um, I didn't expect Tejon Buchanan to come out and just like his dribbling ability with the ball, like shocked me. This guy is going to move out of MLS. Like he has to, he's, he's too good for it. Um, he really stood out to me and seeing Shaq Moore kind of deal with him and then seeing him switch over and Sam Vines also try to deal with him. It was horrifying. I would, I would say he was definitely the standout for me in the game. Benedict, what was your standout of the game? Players, moments, anything that stood out for you? 
Yeah, I'd agree, sort of on that in that sort of same light. But uh, just the versatility of Canada, I think Tejon Buchanan played three positions in that game. He sort of played as a attacking midfielder later in the game as well. Uh, Junior Hoylet dropping back into the number ten role instead of usually being a winger. Uh, he, I thought he was he was pretty good there. Um, Alistair Johnston playing as a sort of a, a right center back in a back three, and I think the, the versatility for Canada was was pretty solid overall. And Tejon Buchanan obviously was the sort of star of the show. He really was. When he was on the ball, that was. It felt like everyone kind of moved to the edge of your seat a little bit, whether you were uh, nervous, uh, you know, horrified, as uh, as Tobes mentioned, or if you were excited because you weren't too sure, you know, what was going to happen next, right? Uh, and I'm seeing a little bit of banter in the chat here. We've got Stick Piano mentioning that, uh, you know, Turner saves the pen anyway, so it will save us the embarrassment. And then we've got Jeffrey coming in here. Uh, you know, don't, don't even worry about that. <laughs> and this is what we expect. This is what we love to see, right, is is I think, you know, most football fans in Europe don't understand how intense Canada-US matches can be. I think a lot of us see us as the Americas. We're all sort of the same. But Canada, for one, let, we could talk a little bit about this. Canada is, we've always been whatever you want to call it, you know, America's hat, the loft department up top, whatever it is. So when we get a chance to uh, force Americans to watch us win something, it's it always makes top news up here. And, and, and I think as an American fan, you can let me know if you're wrong or not, Tobes, but it's always nice to show Canada what's what, whether it's, you know, in hockey or soccer or football or whatever it is, it just seems like these matches always have a little bit of energy for them. Um, Tobes, would you agree is that these are important matches, not always for the results, but just for the, the bragging rights? Yeah. So we had, it's been a while since we played Canada kind of routinely in games that actually mattered. You know, Canada kind of hadn't made the hex for a while, but, you know, with the development of some of the players that Canada has, I think the rivalry's back on. I think every game does have that elevated, maybe not as much as U.S.-Mexico. Those games are, I think, a next level of craziness, but but I think Canada's definitely up there now. Benedict, what did you think? Is this a rivalry that matters um, for, more for Canadians or more for Americans? How do you see it? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely probably America's second rivalry behind Mexico, as as you mentioned. But I think if as Canada starts to get more competitive and, and Canada starts to you know challenge for the hexagon or the octagon, whatever you want to call it now, yeah, I, I think it's it's, it's gonna it's, it's gonna catch up, and I, I think Canada's gonna be you know a force to be reckoned with, and and you know with any team, if you have someone directly challenging you, that's always gonna start a rivalry, and especially when it's your neighbor, I think it's gonna be a, a great rivalry for years to come as, as both these programs develop. I'm really looking forward to it. I, I I look forward to the day, and who knows how far away it is. But I look forward to this dream, this idea that when when both America, the states, and Canada are in the World Cup, you know, at the same time, if that ever does happen, I think that we we Tobes and me we can share a drink and we can we can have that moment of hey, we're here, right? And and then whatever happens, happens. Right? But, we kind of uh, cheated our way into that hosting 2026. Yeah. We're both That's doing true. that. So. That's true. Yeah. Well. Real qualification, let's say, uh, not the, uh, the the standard invite that uh, you know we've had before, or in '86 where we did qualify. But um, question around man of the match. This is a great great shout here from chat. Stick piano calls James Sands is the man of the match. Um, what do you think was your man of the match? I'll start with you, Benedict. Yeah, Sands was and good, but um, despite being on the losing side, I'd, I'd probably still say Tejon Buchanan. I just think he was the most important player on on the pitch. Like everyone was. For Canada, everyone was getting the ball to him, and for America, everyone was, was guarding him. So um, the result didn't favor Canada, but I still say Tejon Buchanan was the best player on the pitch. Tobes, your thoughts on the man of the match? Yeah, I might, 
I'm torn a little bit. Sands is was the best player for the United States for sure. Um, kind of playing as that almost libero stepping into a midfield role when we had the ball. Um, his passing was incredible. He seemed to be the only person, especially after Walker Zimmerman got injured so early. Donovan Pines and Miles Zimmerman were not making progressive passes. Um, our wing backs were, you know, maybe not tactically in the right spot. So it was really on James Sands to move the ball. His passing percentage was great. The way he was able to like slide balls to Busio, Legette, Acosta, who then would proceed to lose the ball and make James Sands win it back. Um, I think the, the number of interceptions James Sands has, he definitely has a, a shout. And I think maybe because Canada failed to score, even with the number of chances that Tejon Buchanan created, I might give it to James Sands having the clean sheet. Okay, that's fair. I think there's a good shout for a few of them. And it's one of those games where it's tough too, because, you know, that first 10 minutes that defined who went ahead really didn't define how the game felt the rest of the way mm-hmm. through. It, w- it was a very um, interesting match for sure. And I think um, if people are just looking at the scoreline and go, oh, yeah, America won, like that's not the story of the game. I think not at all. Much more, <laughs> more depth to that. But, you know, concerning concerning for Canada was, I think, seeing Akinola go down and having to come off. I think that is a big concern for the rest of the, the Gold Cup you know, as well as for, you know, Toronto FC. Um, but what I'm hearing this morning is it might be four to six weeks. Benedict, have you heard anything more detailed around Akinola's uh, injury or, or how long he could be out? Uh, I don't have any insight to that, but one thing that was announced maybe two hours ago was that CONCACAF is going to allow replacement players for injuries for the for the knockout round. So be interesting to see how, if John Herdman uses that for Iowa Akinola once he has a bit of a better idea of, of what this injury looks like. Do you have any idea if there's limits on that? Like, is there a certain amount of players you can replace? Or is it if you have six injuries, you can bring in six players? Uh, I'm not too sure, but I, I imagine. Um, also, it depends on Kyle Aaron as well. Kyle Aaron also went down with an injury in the second half. So uh, Canada have at least, at least two, <laughs> I guess, that they could at least ask about. Tobes? Um, are you, what, what do you think? Was there any injuries for the, the American team yesterday? Yeah, injuries kind of define the game. If you think about it, Walker Zimmerman went out after maybe conceding a pin. And we got injured on the same play. We came into this tournament with only four center backs, really three center backs, because James Sands is, you know, defensive midfielder center back hybrid. And we were playing three at the back. Walker Zimmerman was our captain, and he goes down. We put in Donovan Pines, who's, I mean, when you're looking at the U.S. men's national team center back depth chart, he is in the double digits. Like, there are so many Cameron Carter Vickers, Eric Palmer Brown rejected call ups. There's Chris Richards, Matt Miazga. Mark, I could go, I could go on forever. I haven't even said John Brooks. He is so far down the list and he got caught in possession so many times, just getting pressed by, you know, that, you know, that Canadian press and just giving the ball away. So that that's going to be huge. His health is going to be huge. And then Daryl DK got hurt at the end of the game. He got, it looked like he maybe got hit, like slapped in the face by an extended arm and not, not intentional of course. But then what happened was he grabbed his face to flop landed on his shoulder and hurt his shoulder. <laughs> it's just, I'm a Daryl DK fan, but that is like probably the lowest moment of his career, like hurting his shoulder while flopping. Um, so if they go out, Paul Areola is already out. Reggie Cannon's been dealing with hamstring issues. This is already a shoestring squad. I'm, I'm worried about the team going forward. So it's that defensive depth you think is the big, is the big concern going forward? Or you defensive concerned? depth, winger depth, and then we have midfielder depth, but they're not good players. So, it's, it's, I don't think we're very strong anywhere. I'm, I'm worried. And I think that really Canada's two strikers both going off. I think if they both stay on, I think Canada wins. And I think, you you know, you're not alone in that stick piano here, Pop it in. He thinks that if Akinola had played the whole game, he would have connected on one of Buchanan's crosses and it would have ended in a draw. And I think that's, you know, it's too bad when we see guys go off and, you know, we have to think about, oh, what could have happened? You know, it, 
what what could happen if this player was still healthy. But I'm just hoping that Akinola is not out for a significant period of time. I was excited to see him play. And I'm sure just on a personal note, the player himself was probably extremely excited to play against the nation he just switched from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of back and forth. It's not something that's super uncommon for us in the CONCACAF to see a player switch nationalities, but to see a striker that goes right into the top, you know, he starts the starts a game. That's not a common occurrence, I think. Uh, so it would have been really cool to be able to see him stay on and to see him honestly as a Canadian fan score. The other thing that I wanted to talk about uh, that I thought was really, really nice. I mean, we're going to throw a little bit of the COVID concern aside. We know that, you know, there's rules in different states and there's rules in different countries on what's acceptable. But wasn't it really nice to see a pretty well full ground with a lot of fans being involved in a ground that honestly I think is a, is a fantastic facility to play in? Um, I thought it was really, really cool to see people along the banisters. You know, there was a real energy in there. Obviously, it would have been nice if the borders were open and Voyageurs and, you know, the Canadian fans could have flooded into a section somewhere in there. But um, what did you guys think of the energy? What did you guys think of the the environment there? I thought it was really, really nice to see fans. I'll start with you, uh, Benedict. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, fans are, are the reason why people play the sport. So as we always get reminded by the players and um, I just saw during the Euros as well, and and then during this Gold Cup so far, like the atmosphere makes a huge difference. I think to just not only the the players who have some extra motivation, but just the the product on TV as well for people watching at home, having the atmosphere, it just makes it so much more enjoyable. And and uh, defense can um can influence the outcome of a game. What do you think, Tobes? Did you enjoy the atmosphere? Did you enjoy the look? Yeah, I enjoyed it, especially it's you know the sporting KC crowd. Busio is their homegrown. He's the second youngest player to ever sign an MLS pro contract, or, or when he did, he was the second youngest behind Freddie Adu. Um, so they were like shouting Busio every time he touched the ball, I, which was nice. I kind of think it got to his head a little bit. I wasn't actually that impressed with Busio in this game. He, you know, he's a talented kid, but he he looked like that. He looked like a talented kid against you know a bunch of men in the midfield. Kind of got scared of the occasion and uh, simmered down. I'm, I'm not giving up on him. I, I think he's you know got a very high potential, but I don't think that was his best game. And I think the crowd might have had something to do with that. I mean, it's different, right? For the especially a lot of these athletes, especially if you're young, you know, you've been training the last year and a half. You're used to being in empty grounds. You're used mm-hmm. to being in empty stadiums. You're used to being able to hear your manager call out whatever they need to call out. I mean, there's been kind of a nice part of that as a spectator. You get to hear you know, exactly what is being said sometimes when a man is losing his mind at someone. But now you got sounds, you got crowds, you're trying desperately to get someone's attention across the field to give them an instruction. You know, it's back to that. It must be a little bit of a change. And you're probably right that maybe, maybe the moment got a little, it was a little bit too much. And he's also playing, you know, in a very supportive crowd. There's a little bit of pressure there. I'm sure he had friends and family who were in the crowd. Those things can happen. But if you were disappointed with, with Bustio, Benedict, was there anyone that you were disappointed with on the Canadian side? Was there anyone that you were expecting more from? Not, not overly disappointed. Junior Hoylet, I don't know if he is his best position as, as a center attacking midfielder. I think that might have, I don't know necessarily his fault, though. I think if he was playing maybe wider, get some more of those crosses in, might have been more effectively used. But I don't think anyone in Canada was you know, overly disappointing. I think I would be. I think I would agree too. I think the only disappointing moment was the first two minutes of the game, <laughs> where we looked like we were still just kind of having a chat and getting ready for a, you know a casual kickabout. But um, interesting, you bring up Hoyette though, because it's something I did want to touch on. How often do we see it where a player, uh, you know, comes over without a contract, 
jumps into a national team, you know, and this guy's been around for a while. Like he, you know, he left Cardiff. He's, he's one of the players that inspired a lot of the youth in the Canadian program because he was sort of one of the first big Canadian players to truly, you know, commit to this, this national program. Is it a little risky for him to be out there playing? while he's also maybe looking for a job or do you think it's it's a matter of he's not got enough interest and he's trying to show that he, he wants more people interested i'll uh you know i'll start with you tobes i know that uh this is a canadian question but i do like to alternate so we'll, we'll go to you first <laughs> well, I, I remember seeing junior hoylet back in uh you know when i was playing fifa as a as a young teen and seeing his card and being like there's a canadian player on blackburn in the premier league <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i, I do think it's it's interesting. I, I'm not really aware of his club situation that he didn't have a contract, um, but I think he's clearly talented, and I think that talent and experience mean a lot for the national team. Benedict, what do you think? Is it risky for him to be be out there playing? Is he playing for a contract right now, or is he trying to attract more suitors than he's getting? What, what do you think? I think it's a good thing for him. I think he's putting himself in the shop window and in sort of a, a, a big environment, and, and performing for the national team is kind of the pinnacle of a player's career in some cases, and I think if he can do that without a contract, Hopefully for him that'll that'll sort of uh, generate some interest. But also on the Canadian bench, Frank Sturring is also without a contract. The centre back he played in, in Germany, I believe, and and uh, same situation for him, I think. It's really it, it, that's kind of I've always find that very interesting to me because it's uh, it's one of those things where a player really has to kind of believe in what's going to happen in the tournament, how they're going to show. Because if they get hurt, you know it, that that could mean they leave, they miss a season because they're not going to get a contract in time. You know that that's the risk, right? So it's it's, it's interesting to see. Um, Gold Cup look ahead. Obviously, we're got quarters coming up now. Um, I haven't I haven't had a chance to take a peek at it. Do you guys know who? Uh, who I'll ask you each. Tobes, who's who? Who's America playing next? Do we know? Is there games left in the Gold Cup? Yeah, so I think America and Canada are playing. America's playing whoever gets second, and Canada's playing whoever gets first in the group that contains Costa Rica and Jamaica. Are probably the two teams that are going to get out. So I guess the worry would be that the round after that, right, is basically whoever runs into Mexico would probably be the biggest concern for both of these clubs. I think Canada's on the side of the bracket with Mexico. That was uh, the United States reward for, for winning the game is not being on the same side of the bracket as Mexico. But, you know, because, you know, they're angry about their nation's league loss. They brought almost their full A squad. Yes. Yeah, I know Mexico is scary. I mean, Mexico's always scary. So is that like I guess that's the that's the big hump. I mean, obviously Costa Rica or Jamaica will both be tough, tough teams. But do you think that that the Canadian fans, Canadian players are already looking past that matchup, Benedict, and looking at the Mexican team in that in that semi? Uh, I don't know about looking past it, because you know, as we've seen with Canada so many times, they they, they lost to Haiti, for example, in, in the twenty nineteen tournament. Um so I don't know looking past it, but I also think Canada isn't really bothered with who they play in the next round. I think the expectation and kind of the, the hope is that they'll just beat whoever they play. So I'm, I'm not sure if they're looking past it, but um, the expectation is definitely going into, I think it's on Sunday, the game, and and uh, with the one eye on the Mexico game for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Would you prefer, if you're as a Canadian fan would you, or, or a supporter, would you prefer Costa Rica or Jamaica, or does it truly not matter to you? I don't, I don't think it matters to me. I think, like I said, I think the expectation – uh, for the players, the coaches, the the fans is just they have they have to win either way, and whoever's in their way is is in their way. What about you, Topes? Uh, is there what are you looking forward? To, what are you worried about for the the American team and the rest of this tournament? Uh, you know the the squad, like I said, I didn't like 
really the, a lot of the selections when it came out, a lot of players rejecting call-ups. So now the injuries, it's going to be, and with Greg having played three different formations in each of the three games, I think trying to figure out what his best tactic is, who his best players are. That's really what I'm looking forward to. I will say I'm more scared of Jamaica than Costa Rica. Costa Rica is obviously very experienced and talented, but I think their generation is getting pretty old. I think by this point in the tournament, um, you know, they're probably on fumes right now, whereas Jamaica is more of an up-and-coming team that I think it's been, they look pretty good in their games. I think they've been pretty scary. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, so I have been trying my best to get a lot of people overseas to watch the Gold Cup. You know, stay up late, watch these games, right? You know, Copa America is fantastic. Euro's fantastic. You need to see CONCACAF. It's unique. It's different, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's something that's worth seeing. Um, one of the things that's been a big turnoff, I think, for, you know, let's say European fans is that like, they're not, we're not seeing the A sides play here. And for them, they find that I think a lot of the fans that I've talked to find that very weird. They find it very odd to, to, to cheer for a national team where you're in a tournament that apparently means a lot, but at the same time, you're also not playing your best players. And there's players like you mentioned who've declined call-ups there's players who are injured and there's also players who are being specifically rested for the world cup qualifiers. Do you think that that hurts the Gold Cup tournament and the eyes that go on it? Do you think it hurts the ability to kind of share this tournament with the rest of the world? Because I honestly think it's it's underwatched uh, for for what it means to you know this this side of the world. I think it provides maybe not the highest quality football if you're comparing it to the Euro. That's fine, but I love watching football. I love watching soccer. Right. So if it's if if it's French Martinique versus uh, Costa Rica. I really don't care. I, I'm happy to watch it. What do you think the Gold Cup could do in the future? Do you think it's just this year because of COVID? What do you think has made this tournament feel kind of, I don't know what the word would be, a little bit weird, a little bit secondary? I, I'll start I'll start with you, Tobes. I, I do think it's a bit COVID-related because if I'm remembering correctly, the Nations League was supposed to take place last year. And that got delayed, which pushed it into this year. And I think with the Gold Cup, if the Gold Cup was happening when the Nations League was happening, then, it, you know, we would have seen the A-sides. Really, with the Nations League, we only saw America, the United States of America and Mexico's A-sides play one game. And then Honduras and Costa Rica were also there. I think that just kind of the way the calendar shook out this year, and then all the European-based players not really coming into the Gold Cup. I, I do think it's a bit COVID, but I also think that this isn't the first time this has happened with the Gold Cup. This isn't the first time I've seen the U.S. into like a B, C, D team to the Gold Cup. So I think they need to be smarter about how they schedule it. What do you think, Benedict? Is, is the Gold Cup kind of feeling like a little bit of a secondary tournament this year? And is that just this year? Or is that uh, something that's always happened in the Gold Cup from your from your perspective? Yeah, I also think this year is, is partly because of COVID. Like a lot of teams had uh, ended their seasons late. Uh, a lot of teams are already back in preseason, so that's affecting some players' eligibility or availability, I guess. But also, generally for the Gold Cup, I think, like uh, like Tobes mentioned, it's it's a little bit late in the summer. I think like it's it's getting to the point where team players, some players, would rather prioritize preseason with their club team than the national team. And I think by playing it right at the end of the of the season um, or the club season would be probably the optimal. But obviously, with the Euros and and the Copa America as well, you didn't want to clash with it too much because then I think. Probably Gold Cup is third on that list in terms of what most international fans would be interested in. And so I think it's, it's partly because of this year, but also just generally something they should watch out for. Thought from Stick Piano here in the chat. The Gold Cup is crazy. 
for being held during league preseason. It ruins the tournament and leads to B-sides. And I, I think, you know, that's basically the summary of what we're talking about here. But what do you do? Do you schedule against the Euro and the Copa America? Like, you schedule against the Copa America and you know where the international fans are going to be watching. They're going to be watching the Copa America. I mean, the the names in that tournament are much, much, much bigger. And we can talk about how big some of the players are for Mexico and the States and Canada, but they're never going to have the star power of an Argentina or a Brazil, for example. Does there need to be maybe a, an effort to work with scheduling around those tournaments? Like in the sense that I know Copa does, there's days where there's days off. Could they not stagger where you have Copa America one night and Gold Cup the next night and try to share the love a little bit? Or is that something that these organizations just don't do uh benedict I'll, I'll start with you on your thoughts on that yeah i think the problem with that is both federations want sort of like the prime time games i guess like weekends and, and evenings like friday night kind of games but uh, i'm not sure how many people would tune in for martinique and and whoever on like a monday evening so i think that, that's probably part of the problem um but also i think this year it's a different scenario because the Euros were also postponed from last year. If it was just Gold Cup and Copa America, maybe they should have and could have and should have started earlier. Um, with, with the Euros, I think it probably was smart to to delay it a little bit, but it did ultimately sort of affect the availability of some players. What do you, what do you think, Tobes? Is there a way to get around this kind of? It, it, you know what this feels like, and this this is totally not a football related thing, but if for those who are golf fans. Uh, for a long, long time, the Canadian major, the Canadian tour was right after, I believe it was either the Masters or the U.S. Open. It was right after a major. And so no one would go because it was the next tournament you wanted to take a break after a major. And so Canada had to spend a lot of time basically harassing <laughs> the schedulers to try and move it to another point, at which point it became more popular and some of those big names came. Like, it just seems to be like it's a scheduling conundrum frankly because there's just so much going on there's so many tournaments and at the end of the day you know CONCACAF will have to deal with the fact that they are sort of the minnow in the sense in comparison to the other federations and the ability to garner audience and bring excitement towards a tournament do you think that that could change in the future as Canada states maybe some of these other countries continue to grow uh I'll go with you Tobe to start I think it's, you know, I think we can maybe overtake Asia as a qualifying, maybe Africa as a qualifying region, but I, I think we're shooting way too high if we're trying to to match Europe or South America, which are the two tournaments that the Gold Cup would have competed with this summer, the Euros and the Copa America. But with the Gold Cup normally happening on odd years and the Euros normally happening on the even years where there's not a World Cup, I don't. I think this was kind of a one-time, that specific scheduling issue is kind of a one-time thing. But... Again, I don't remember exactly why, but this isn't the first time it's happened. So clearly they're not prioritizing it. <laughs> and I think probably the other part of this, and Benedict, you can confirm if this is right, but also the schedules from different leagues in CONCACAF also don't align. There isn't a, a general understanding of how those those seasons align. You know, Canadian Premier League runs at a particular time. The MLS runs at a particular time. You know, I don't think they all line up. So it causes that same kind of issue. Is this just something that CONCACAF basically lives with benedict and it's just it's a matter of trying to optimize that schedule every year the best they can yeah i think the problem with that is or, or the thing that you're kind of oh we lost you there a bit there benedict sorry 
Um, since then, like the MLS and the Canadian Premier League are kind of a summer season, and you kind of lose the opportunity to have both, um, or sort of have a, have a gap in one for the other one. Yeah. I think that kind of affects it a little bit because there are people who are big club fans but don't necessarily care about the national teams, or, or vice versa. And I think that that's probably part of the problem as well. Is you need to find a way to sort of um, have them intertwined without seriously interrupting the other one. It just it's just one of those things that I like to explore because I'm constantly trying to drag my Irish, English, German, whoever fans to be like, come on, let's watch like Suriname and uh whoever's playing tonight. Like, why not? And they're just like, who? Right? Like, you know what I mean? It's 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 tough to bring them in, but uh, you know, I'm never gonna stop. I think I think CONCACAF offers a unique uh experience. There's matchups here you don't see. I mean, we even have a country that's not technically a country according to FIFA that 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 competes in CONCACAF like it's, it's 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 a unique place and I think there's a lot that's uh that, that could sell it whether or not it's that it's the quality that people are looking for then you're not you're not you're not maybe not going to get into it but I, I like where else are you going to see some of these insanely long penalties at the end of the game where else are you going to see some of these you know the officiating change the standard change from game to game where you know one thing's a foul and the next time it's nothing you know get up right so I, I don't know. I think I think it's uh, it's got a lot to offer, and I'm going to continue to be that stubborn. In that U.S. Mexico game, you got to see like the players playing dodgeball with the fans, which is something <laughs> that you know you don't get to see in uh, Europe. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, unique, unique, unique chances there <laughs> for sure. So um, I'm just I'm just trying to trying to think about if there was anything else I wanted to pick your minds on. I've really appreciated you guys coming on here today. This has been fantastic. I did see a, a comment from Stick Piano earlier asking about maybe who, you know, if Akinola and Laren and Zimmerman and DK are injured, kind of what kind of, now that the Gold Cup has said we can call up replacements, kind of looking into maybe who could accept the call-ups for those kind of positions. I mean, here's a question. I mean, can we call up David Benedict? Is that even a thing? I don't think so, right? Because he's probably focused on his season now. Um who would we call up? I'll start. I'll start with you, Benedict. If there were if there were injuries to Akinola, who were some of the first, you know, players that come to mind as possible replacements? Well, I think the fun one, the sort of banter one, would be uh, Daniel Jebison from Sheffield United. Um, he's, he's he's been with an England youth camp recently, but he's from Oakville, Ontario, I believe. So um, I I don't think he's gonna be quite ready to commit to Canada yet, but he was in that provisional roster, I believe. Um, the more likely one would be Tesho Akindele. Uh, that's one I, I believe Oliver Platt from One Soccer uh, just tweeted out not long ago, and uh, I can definitely agree with that. Like he's he's been a national team regular to some extent, and and uh, probably one of the better available options. Fairly close to where the tournament taking place at the moment. Sounds sounds great, Tobes. For your injuries, is there anybody you, you, is in your head? I know you were pretty deep down on that center back depth list. There, are you uh, hoping that maybe some of these guys who declined call ups could? That, that's the hope. I'll start with DK because that's a little bit easier. Um, when Greg called this roster together, he called up five center forwards and one winger as our forwards. So I, if DK's out, I wouldn't bother trying to replace him with a, with another striker. I would look at MLS wingers that would accept the call up. You know, Pulisic and Brendan Aronson, those guys, and Wea, those guys wouldn't accept the call up because um, they're in preseason. But either Chris Mueller or Cade Cowell. You know, Cade Cowell, really talented duo national. 17 year old um, I would like to try to get him in get him cap tied because uh, I think his ceiling's pretty high and he's good now he's the only player in MLS with I think four goals and four assists at least four goals and four assists right now uh, so I bring one of those two for the center backs I mean <laughs> John Brooks Chris Richards 
Mark McKenzie, Matt Miaska will not accept call-ups. Cameron Carter-Vickers and Eric Palmer-Brown already rejected call-ups. Then you have three Omar guys that Gonzalez. are here. What was that? Omar Gonzalez. <laughs> Mark Gonzalez, yeah, his corpse. We can drag his corpse around. Maybe like someone like Justin Glad from New York Red Bulls. I wouldn't be happy. With, I mean, we're just so far on the depth chart. None of these people are really that good, no matter who you pick. Uh, probably Justin Glad, maybe... <laughs> probably Justin Glad. <laughs> so it sounds to me like it, it, you know, you're, it sounds like the American team is going to be scraping the barrel a little bit. Yeah, uh, I see Stick just put uh, Tim Ream in the chat. I, I assume at Fulham he would also reject the call up. So always try another always one. Try. <laughs> one thing I liked here is uh, Sunday driver dropping, and let's just kidnap Glory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and and of course Grunge is a Milan fan, and he's 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 like, hey, we just bought this guy. Like, please come on. Um, here, here's the qu- what I noticed from both of you though is that you know, you both were like you know it would be really great is nabbing these guys who don't have a cap yet and getting them locked <laughs> into a cap while we have the opportunity right like the Sheffield United kid he looks fantastic and I have a buddy who's a Sheffield United fan I actually didn't know much about him uh, until he, he stepped onto that game and, and really kind of turned heads uh, earlier this year and then I was like oh boy we need to steal him from the English somehow please uh, <laughs> Because, you know, that's that's our play sometimes over here, right? You have those dual nationalities and you see a guy who's maybe not getting the time that they want, getting the getting the looks that they need. They're stuck in that under-23 side. You go, hey, come play for Canada. We got a gold cup going on right now. We can get you in the lineup right now. Let's go, right? So big thank you guys for coming on to the show today. I really, really appreciated this conversation. It was really enjoyable. I learned a lot. Uh, before we go, I always like to give our guests an opportunity to, you know, um, um, talk a bit about what they're doing, what they're working on, and, and plug any shows or anything that they're working on. So, Tobes, I'll start with you. What are you up to these days, and well, uh, where can people connect with you? <laughs> I've been uh, busy moving around, supporting my spouse through, the, uh, through her clerkships in medical school, but I just got back to my apartment, so I think the streaming is going to start soon. I've been doing a full America save where you, on F Football Manager, where you can only buy Americans, and I just somehow won the Premier League by, you know, cheating, or I don't know how I did it. There's <laughs> something went wrong. Something went horribly wrong for every other team in the league. Um, so I think I'll hope to get back on that soon. And that's at twitch.tv slash Tobesleroni, I believe, yes, correct? that's I'll correct. Drop, I'll drop a link on uh, in either Twitter, or you guys can always ask me on Discord, and I'll be happy to share, shoot you over a link. Thanks, Benedict. Steve. Where can people find you and what are you up to these days? I, you have a lot in your bio, so I'll let you break it down. <laughs> my main role at the moment, I'm with uh, canpl.ca, the, the official website of the Canadian Premier League, doing a lot of coverage about that league. Uh, also, obviously the Gold Cup at the moment, the women's national team start the Olympics on Wednesday morning. So there'll be a lot of coverage around that. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at BTFR17, and happy to uh, provide some quality content. Well, I appreciate you both so much for being here. Uh, we'll definitely have to drag you guys back on again when there's another opportunity to do so. This has been fantastic. But thank you, guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, just, again, really appreciate your time and dealing with a little bit of the hiccups as I learn how to do this. So appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Scoot. So there we are. That was a really great discussion around the Gold Cup game. Uh, Conca Calf, a little bit of uh, U.S. men's national team and the Canadian men's national team. So big thank you to everybody who's been hanging out in chat. The poutines are dropping in chat, which we love very much. So the next part of the show, I'm going to be bringing on a friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about something a little bit more serious. We're going to be talking about the uh, scandal happening in the National Hockey League right now around the Chicago Blackhawks. 
Um, for those, I'm going to go ahead and just throw out a content warning. If you are uncomfortable with conversation around sexual assault, uh, sexual violence, this may not be the segment for you. We are going to be diving into a little bit of a, of, of a serious conversation here. So without any further ado, let's bring in my friend, Dan. Dan, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me all right? Uh, we are good. Thank you so much for taking the time to jump in with me today. No problem. Sorry, I'm a little dim. One of my ring lights uh, blew out this morning. So apologies for that. I look a little little corpsey, but you know, it's all good. That, that's okay. I, I haven't even turned my light on. It gets too warm. It's just too warm. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, Scoots, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. I've got uh, some notes here and uh, going to see what, uh, you know, there's lots to talk about for sure in regards to the Blackhawks and, and what they've done. But, uh, you know, let's let, let's get started. Yeah. So Dan, uh, let's just do a little bit of an intro for those who don't know you. Uh, Dan and I have been friends for a very long time. This man, his main job has been a little bit on hold due to COVID, but it's starting to creep back out. But this man's an entertainer, travels around the world, does all sorts of, uh, is circus the right word? A little bit of... Uh... Yeah, acrobatics. Basically, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in, uh, Scoots, it's uh, my wife and I perform a two-person acrobatic show around the world, and we call ourselves uh, a low-budget Cirque du Soleil. So that's pretty much that's pretty much how we how we sell it. Yeah, it's uh it's very 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 cool. And on the side of that, insane hockey fan has organized hockey teams, including some tournaments overseas. Uh, he's been a he's been a massive hockey fan in Winnipeg mm. uh, for a very very long time. And I thought it would be a really good opportunity to bring in somebody that uh, I know that me may not always agree on how we see things, and that's always something I think is uh, fantastic when you bring people on on a show, right? Spice of life. Twice of life. Uh, Grunge, I could definitely hook you up. There's actually a question right off the bat here. So mm. Grunge is wondering if there's any videos of you guys performing. There absolutely is. Mm -hmm. And we'll, uh, uh, Grunge, if you want to drop me a note or I'll try to remember, I'll send you some links later. Dan can send me over can a couple of drop the Drop the website in chat really quick if that's okay with you. Uh, Do it. Okay, Do there it. you go. Thank you there kindly. You go. So turning from something fun and exciting like a street circus to something quite concerning uh i've been watching this story grow and for those who aren't familiar with it i'll just kind of do a little bit of a summary um the chicago blackhawks a professional hockey team uh, play in the national hockey league they've been around they're one of the original six franchises in the nhl so they have an incredibly storied history and are very well known mm -hmm. um so what happened is a story broke earlier this year um, that there was basically assaults that occurred in the summer of 2010, um, basically when this team was competing in the playoffs, uh, competing at some of the highest level tournaments that this league offers. There's been accusations uh, and now a lawsuit that's been brought forward by a couple of players. Uh, I believe they're both not named John Doe officially in the documents. Uh, yeah, they are. That being said, we're just going to try and not mention who they are just because there is pretty clear. Everybody knows who they are, but I don't want to, uh, if they're identifying themselves as John Doe, we'll just leave it at that. But basically what happened is these two guys were taken advantage of by a fitness coach. Um, and it was basically an open secret. Um, this is the part that really bothers me is that this was something that almost every player knew about the trainers knew about and the management and the team knew about, and it was mm. brought up to the management group by a trainer who said we need to go to the police and that manager was told that we're not going to do that and this trainer uh suddenly didn't disappeared from his job and was quietly moved away from the organization so 
before we and and the, given a letter of reference, which is insane, and given a letter of reference <laughs> by the organization. Mm -hmm. And now his current job, which has just come out earlier earlier today, he is managing um, a business where he continues to bring in young men as interns from schools. And this this is something that uh, a lot of people are saying is is incredibly dangerous, and is is you're feeding someone who unfortunately has experienced grooming children of this age, young men, and taking advantage of them. And before we even get into the discussion, my biggest problem with this is that the NHL, for, again, for those I know, a lot of people don't hear, don't follow the NHL, but they spent millions and months on an investigation into the into the Arizona Coyotes because they worked out draftees too early. In this case, they've practically done very little in terms of what the NHL has talked about. I don't think they've done almost anything, to be yeah. completely fair. Completely. And Dan's nailing it on the head. They haven't done anything. So I've ranted for a little bit. I've kind of set what we're going to talk about. Dan, are you feeling the kind of same sense of disgust? I mean, it's it's just so, you know, it's just so evident. And, and the fact remains, too, that I believe that uh, everyone knows the coach, the coach is Aldrich, uh, Brad Aldrich. Uh, he went after he finished with the Blackhawks to Miami University and was convicted of abusing another minor within a, like almost a year of his, you know, dismissal from the Blackhawks. Like this is not somebody who had a lapse in judgment. This is a continued repeated pat pattern of abuse uh, by a person in power that is largely going unchecked. And Scoots, you know, as much as I do that, uh, that hockey is a game of uh, skill. It's a game of uh, teamwork, but it's, 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 there's, there's a camaraderie, and a like a essence in hockey that it's always everything you do, whether you're a coach, a player, a manager, uh, a prospect is for the greater good of the team, no matter what it is. And most of the times that is an amazing way to play a team sport and to be in a team. But this is one of those times where that is a complete failure of administration. And I don't, I, I have a, I, I, if you're going to touch on SOPA later, which I assume we will, uh, I don't want to go too much into it, but uh, I can't begrudge the players as much for it as I can the rest of the coaches and management. As I a, think I would agree with you. Yeah. Because the managers and the administration of the team set the tone. They set what's acceptable. Mm -hmm. And they're also the ones who are responsible for ensuring that there's supports for these players. Supports where people can go and talk about something that might be uncomfortable. They talk about an issue or just need to be able to talk to a doctor about something that's going on at home. Like we know that sports has evolved to the point where, you know, the mental health is just as important as the physical health. Right. Correct. So this this occurred in a time where, you know, it occurred in 2010. I would say that in the past 10 years, that type of conversation around mental health has accelerated quite drastically. And it's sad to say, but I don't I don't think that people would feel as safe talking about this in 2010 as maybe they do now in 2020 or 2021. No, but I think but I think what was most. I think what was most upsetting was reading about the the meeting that went up 
where, where they sat down with the general managers or the assistant general managers, the trainer basically made the case and they said no, but they didn't do anything about it. See, the point, that's where the, the administration began to fail. They had an opportunity to open an internal investigation. They mm-hmm. had an opportunity to do, uh, to suspend him while they mm-hmm. did that investigation. They had a number of opportunities. And what they did was they chose to do absolutely zero about it. And then basically politely give the guy another job with a nice referral. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like, again, it wasn't the, like the dome doesn't cover all the coaches and management, like Paul Vincent, who was the skills coach for the Blackhawks in that, in their first cup run, two players approached uh, coach Vincent about what had happened. And he, the, 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 the skills coach went to the management and said, we got to do this. You should go to the police and I'm willing to testify and management pushed him aside as well. So we're not we're not talking about even the coaching staff at this point. We're talking about like the top tier brass of the Blackhawks. And uh, if, if if you as a player, especially a young player, go to your coach, somebody that you trust on your uh, on your team, somebody that you feel in 2010, like you said, it's come a long way in in the last decade plus. In 2010, that you feel like I can have this conversation, something really screwed up has happened. I trust this coach. I'm going to say it. And then the coach goes, that coach goes to management and management pushes away. Like what power do you have as a player? And like, yeah, it's just, uh, I hope today, given how far things are, are, are pushing, you know, like you said, with the, uh, the acknowledgement of mental health and mental health awareness, and especially with the stance, the league is taking on it. Like we could easily, um, again, not for the same reasons, but we could easily have another Rick Rippin or Derek Bugard by somebody who has to repress these feelings for so long and, uh, has to, who ends up feeling powerless and who ends up feeling, uh, ostracized. And the only way that they can control themselves is by taking, you know, the only way that they feel they can have control of their life is by saying, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. I've got the power to do this, you know, and it's, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just that, that cyclical inability of management to, to really just, you know, throw their own guys under the bus that needed to be run over is just an absolute disgrace. What I find I think is is truly too upsetting is that when it gets up to that level, you talk about these organizations and we talk about the tenets of, sport really i mean it's hockey or whatever it is it's it's camaraderie it's it's teammanship it's you know this becomes an extension of your family i i still know lots of guys that i played hockey with and you see them they're going to yell out you know my last name because no one speaks first name to each other when you're (laughs) hockey yeah exactly Uh, and you know them for a long long time You, you you build this this extended family and to think that um you know as you move up those tenets and those values seem to slowly kind of fade away because especially as you move up into the NHL and this conversation moves up to that, you know, executive management level, their first conversation is how is this going to make the team look? Yeah. Who's going to get it? And it's just like, that's the wrong way to think. It really should have been, what can I do to to support this team? What can I do to support my brothers? What can I do to, to make this team feel safe and a good, and and as an employer, what can I do as an employer to ensure that my place of employment is a safe place to work. Like, yeah. Right. It's, it's shocking to me that this is something where we're still seeing stories come out and I have to give a big, 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 you know, thank you to, to Rick West Westhead from TSN, who's continually covered this story and yeah. is willing to do things and cover stories that, you know, uh, do their best to try and stay away from, from any sort of light. Mm-hmm. 
It's uh, you know, and also too, like the 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 spider web of of that team runs deep. Like, let's be honest, who was on that team in management? Mark Bergevin, Kevin Cheveldayoff. Like, these are names that we know, and most of us in Winnipeg, especially, love. You know, like where and you know, just to think, you you, you know, we we've been we've been fortunate enough to have our team back for ten seasons now. And, uh, you know, at least in Winnipeg, the, the image of Shevel Dayoff and Paul Maurice is that they embody the city that's hardworking. It's the long plan. They're, they're calculated, uh, you know, uh, very, very calculated, very, uh, sorry, I'm lacking the word here, but they're, they're not afraid to make difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder, like, did they have the knowledge that this was going on? And, uh, you know, again, it just, it just, it, the spider web goes for miles in hockey. Hockey is a small world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, especially I, too. Sorry, go ahead. I'll let you finish off. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you're nailing it right there. It is truly a spider web of this it's incredibly small family. Mm-hmm. Like, professional hockey players, for those who don't know, it's not like, you know, soccer or football. Like, it's not in the sense that there's teams everywhere, there's jobs everywhere. There's a certain amount of leagues where you can make a career playing. And then there's that's pretty much it. You know, most guys, teams are big enough. You have 25, 30 guys who play on a team. And you you get to know guys. Even if you played with them for two to three years, I can mention mm-hmm. all the guys I know who meant, went into some professional rank and mm-hmm. played. Uh, and I would hope that they're taken care of and supported and protected from people like this, right? Um, I think what, what really grinds my gears about this too is the fact that it's been quiet for so long. That... You know, we talked. You talked a bit about I don't. We don't want to grind on the players. There's. You're right. I don't want to grind on the players, but at the same time, there's so many avenues they could have anonymously reported this. Yeah. No wonder that it was an open secret. Knowing that your teammate was abused, knowing that your employer has hidden this from happening. Yeah. The NHLPA has anonymous ways of reporting these things. The police have anonymous ways of reporting these things. But everybody was so afraid of probably what that effect of that if you're known as the guy who outed it in the hockey family yeah that has another effect too right yeah for sure i mean i guess to me like the the power imbalance like not every player uh is a Sidney crosby or uh a blake wheeler or uh you know uh steven stamkos or kucherov or whatever right not that's not not every player has that power so if i'm a third liner fourth liner i'm making I don't know, double league minimum salary. So 1.5 mil a year. I've had a great season. I'm in contract talks. You know, it's, I really have a hard time because it's, it's like there's to, to put it into a personal perspective. There's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of times where we get booked for shows and, and uh, clients and they're like, these are your circumstances. And then we arrive to perform and the circumstances have entirely changed and you don't want to be the person who's like hey you said the stage was going to be 20 feet by 40 feet now it's 10 feet by 10 feet i don't know if i can do this safely because you know that's going to look bad and they're going to hire somebody else it you'll be you know like there's 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 always more people coming up and like i like i i get it i've been there not with anything quite of this magnitude but like the stage example is is one and if i feel like that as a circus performer, you know, making a one, like a one client contract, I cannot imagine the feeling of you push your whole life and you get to the NHL 
and again, you're a third liner, maybe a fourth liner. Do you really want to, yeah, like you said, you don't want to be that guy in the family who's like, eh, because you know, so, you know, like, you know, somebody is just going to go and take that, take that opportunity that you've been given, which is why to me personally, I, I mean, yes, it would take a strong voice from the players to, to stand up, but I can definitely, I don't want to say justify or not even understand but I know that what that pressure feels like in a very small situation, I kind of didn't begin to understand what it would feel like in a situation of that magnitude. And I mean, it's the reality is, and, and this is an interesting conversation just from the chat. Sir Grunge just added a couple of comments, which I'll go through. So he he's had the he's from Sweden. He mm -hmm. uh, he coaches uh, football, soccer. Oh. But obviously, if you're from Sweden, there's also going to be lots of athletes who also play hockey. So he's had the fortune to babysit and and develop both you know kind of see both and he oh wow it's unique to a lot of these issues are unique to hockey because the pressure of hockey is just as you mentioned you mentioned up as a third line player it is incredibly easy to replace you yeah incredibly easy for you to be missed and forgotten and dropped off and and moved away so you're nailing it a bit on the head there i think dan is it is it not only is it the fear of of obviously you want to do something right but if it affects your career and your trajectory negatively to the point where you may not ever have a chance to break into the NHL again, of course, that's going to sit over your head. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to call this out. Yeah. And I think the conversation and the comments you're getting from some of the players who were there, the one that really stuck out to me was, uh, Oh goodness. I'm the guy, the defenseman who was just traded to Edmonton. Remind me Patrick or, uh, just traded to Edmonton. I'll find his name. Anyway, he had pointed out his comment would basically was it's unfortunate what happened. I wish it was handled better, but then basically kind of said that he had faith in the team to do what's right. And I think that's totally playing the safe card, which is, I know it was wrong. Mm. I didn't feel I could do anything. I hope the people who are truly responsible for these sorts of, of things does the right. right thing. It's, it's so delicately worded. Like, and there's a lot of that, you know, you look at, you know, it, it, it's the it's the hockey view turned up to or sorry, hockey interview turned up to eleven. You know, where you're saying a lot of words, you're being personable, but you're not saying anything at all. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but there's definitely more between the lines in that in that uh, in in that quote that you mentioned earlier for sure. Reading between the lines, absolutely. And here's the problem that I have: it's not with the players who didn't do anything. It's not necessarily you know, the reporters who maybe chose to keep this quiet because they wanted to keep access. It's it's the fact the NHL, now knowing this, hasn't done anything. Yeah, Duncan Keith. Duncan Keith, thank you Duncan Keith. Because I actually just pulled up, a, a, just to, to go on the um, that, that quote that you mentioned, uh, Keith said the exact same thing. He said this just after he was traded to Edmonton. He said, it's a very important subject and something that's – becoming there's more awareness in the world right now and for me i'd rather not get into anything like that in terms of my memories of it and what happened it's been a long time and i realize that people want answers i hope one way or another things work out for the best with that situation the team uh gets it sorted out and there's some way to move on for everybody it's exactly the same it's like you read that it's you're lawyer, like it's lawyer crafted part of yeah it, i'm sure but um i don't know no, sorry part of the lawsuit in a yeah. sense right but like you, you read something like that, and you're like, absolutely, more like absolutely players knew, like, 
just like a hundred percent. You like, I don't, I'd rather not get into anything like that in terms of my memories of that and what happened, you know, like that's, See, that's, that's me to me. I'm hearing a guy who probably remembers something, yeah. but doesn't want to be drawn into yeah, or asked like, or being subpoenaed into this lawsuit because he's a current player in the NHL. Yeah. He's no longer part of Chicago. Now he's been yeah. moved. He doesn't want to deal. And there's a part of me that gets that from a personal level. Yeah. And then there's an, also a part of me that goes, come on, man. Like you're near the end of your career. Just stand up and say it like, you yeah. Money. <laughs> uh, well, no, you're not wrong. And again, like what we're talking about here is we're talking about, again, we're not talking about like a young kid, like Kirby doc coming into the Blackhawks. We're talking about Duncan Keith, you know, and who 30, knows? 36. Yeah, I can't remember. He's, uh, I don't know. He's, he's around our age. So yeah, somewhere in there. Um, but, What's that? A vet for sure. A vet, yes. <laughs> a, a storied individual in the NHL. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he, you know, it's if, and who knows what the pressures are on him? Who knows what Bowman or anyone is, has said to him and just being like, you know, like you talk, it's like, you know, it could be that like the camera's on him and then behind the camera, somebody's just like, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Like, we just don't know. And I, you, you see Duncan Keith saying something like that, and it's just like, what hope does that prospect have? You know what I mean? I, I, that's the thing that worries me a bit is I hope the new, the next generation of players, and I think we're seeing it. I think you can see the young guys feel more comfortable just saying what they think. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and, and challenging things when they don't, when, when they have an issue. I had a, a guest on earlier on the first episode. We talked a bit about how empowered NBA players are. Like NBA mm-hmm. players can basically go to an owner and go, no, I don't like that. I'm not going to play until you do this. Right. NHL players could use a bit more player power. And I think if there was a bit more player power in the NHL, this wouldn't have sat for 10 years. No, I think you're a hundred percent. Like you're, you nailed it. Like again, the, the idea it's, it's a pervasive idea in the NHL that, you know, everything is the greater good. Everything is for the greater good of the team. And if you're not for the greater good of the team, then you're not going to be on the team. So it leads to toxic decisions because you're protecting the team. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong. I think that mantra is part of hockey. I think it's essential to part of hockey. I I agree. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not this all encompassing rule that only does good. There's times where it's used to protect people. It should not be protecting. Well, like I said, you know, even, even in the, you know, very, very minor and base levels that we played in, you know, uh, scoot you, once you played with a certain group for some time, it's, it's, you know, you, you go to a very, very, very low stakes version of war with them. You know what I mean? And it, it yeah. creates this, 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 this brotherhood and, and, 90 I would say 99% of the time that is 100% what you need and we're looking at that 1% right here where it's not and the other thing that I I just the thing that another thing that bothers me uh about it uh scoots and you know you can you'll you'll touch on this as sure as well or I'm sure as well is that the like you said the NHL hasn't said anything but we've seen the NHL especially in the past half decade be ramming this uh pr campaign which is good of you can play you know you are empowered you know uh hockey for all colors uh the uh uh, diversity alliance that um at ryan reeves and evander kane and matt dumba were were, like the nhl is 
shoving all this stuff down, but they're like, you know, they've got, they're talking out of the mouth that has one foot in the other side is what I feel like. And it's, that weakens their message that weakens their good messages of if you're LGBTQ, if you're uh, a visible minority, if you uh, have a, you know, if you stand up for BLM or what, you know, push against inequality publicly, we'll support you. But not if a coach uh, uses a power uh, dynamic to uh, sexually assault you, then oh, I'm sorry. You're on yeah, your wash our hands. That might affect us, affect our dollars, right? Yeah. Whereas a lot of those PR campaigns and the big concern, I think, at Diversity Alliance, who you mentioned, is a, who, for those who don't know, is a group of colored players who've come together to try and push some of the concerns that they have, um, and there is many. Hockey is a not not unique to any like any other sport. There's concerns, there's issues, and there's things that are being worked through. But what I think the NHL is trying to show, is trying to get across, is that hockey is accessible it's open anyone can play right yes but as soon as you see a story like this and if i'm it doesn't it doesn't vibe either you walk the walk while you talk the talk or yeah. you talk the talk until it it, it it no longer serves you and you just become an, a really a soulless corporate entity mm -hmm. and that's been a huge criticism of the nhl for a very long time i mean we as being canadians we have a different view on how hockey should be treated, when, it, where it should be played, the type of country, you know, places that should have hockey in it. And I don't think that you and I or most Canadian fans were like, you know what, we need to get hockey in Florida. We need to get hockey into the desert. Yeah, California said, and Florida should have five teams between the two. You know what right? I mean? Like, yeah. And that, but that being said, there's been success with a lot of those things that I haven't mm -hmm. agreed with. So I'm not, I'm not the marketing guy. But I, at the end of the day, if if hockey wants to come out of this looking like a, a sport that supports its athletes that does what it says and supports the players that are that that have brought forward issues like they say mm -hmm. they do there needs to be an investigation from the nhl side there needs to be some sort of public acknowledgement that this happened and there needs to be some sort of something done about um aldrich and the fact that he's still able to operate out there working with kids on a day-to-day -day basis from recommendations and references he has from NHL clubs, which yep. is ridiculous. And he's been involved in university and high school uh, hockey throughout the Southern U.S. without pause since 2013, since yeah. the last time. Uh, I'm not sure if that was the last time that he was accused of uh, of assaulting another minor but you know that was seven years ago and as we've said earlier this is a pattern of behavior that hasn't stopped from hockey's highest level down to university and high school programs if it didn't if you know if being the nhl doesn't get you to really reevaluate and and seek some help for what might be an addiction or like you know uh, some kind of you know behavioral disorder what hope do these kids have in the Southern U S where they're trying to grow hockey yeah. from the ground up? It's uh, it's really, it's really unfortunate. I think you and I, we've, 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 we've talked about it at the end of the day, there needs to be something done either from the Blackhawks side or the, the owner's side or the NHL side. I, I yeah. don't really care who it is. And if it's not them, why isn't the Chicago police open an investigation to have a conversation with these guys? It just, it's one of those things where, more could be done and right now it just feels like it's being conveniently brushed under under the bed and people are hoping that that's people where people will remember it 
Yeah, just as a, as you said, the police, like, uh, as a final little uh, exclamation point on how crazy all this is, uh, just checking my notes here, the police had been alerted to all of these assaults from 2012. Actually, the last one was filed in Miami in 2018 and gets forwarded to a police department and then just does not get any traction. So I assume you can only surmise that there's a backroom deal somewhere as a university or high school calling the police and being like, listen, I just got to work with the Blackhawks. And they go, Oh, okay. You know, it's it just, just, it just seems like it, it's one of those things where people are, you don't, this is a mess you don't want to get into. Exactly. And they're protecting it that way. But anyway, let's, we can move on from this conversation. I think we can move on to some other things that are happening in the NHL. Yeah. One of the things actually broke earlier today, and I'd like to talk a little bit about it because I think on the flip side of this story, it's an, incredibly positive and something i'm i'm really excited to read about and it's cool because uh stick piano actually just dropped it into the chat here have we talked about Procop? so i don't know if you saw the story yet today uh dan but a draftee who's going into his first nhl camp Procop, has mm-hmm. come out as openly gay which i think is unbelievably positive nashville predators yep by far overdue in every sport um we, we need people to be more comfortable walking into rooms, dressing mm-hmm. rooms, and be and it not being a place that's just filled with toxic masculinity. Like, yeah. it, at the end of the day, it's we talk about family, talk about brotherhood, and part of that is accepting people for who they are. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really excited. So big, if I could, I know he's not watching, but Procop, big round of applause. Buddy. For real, absolutely. That's uh, And you know, the, the great thing about this, too, it's like, on the flip side, just, you know, like you said, as the league progresses, we know there are gay NHLers right now. We know it. There are like 100%. there are definitely <laughs> like more than a handful. And who knows this kid coming out? I think he's what twenty, nineteen or twenty, something 20, like that. Yeah. yeah, he comes out. He co- and he just says, "Look, I'm gonna go try to play for the Nashville Predators. I'm gay. Let's go." And, you know, like, how crazy would it be, again, if one of the big names in hockey, after a couple more kids do this, and, you know, like you said, the big name is winding their career down. They said, by the way, I was also gay. Whole career, nobody, nobody, like, you know, no, nobody it, nobody treated me any differently. I was gay the whole time. I, I it, Like, you get that toxic masculinity, like, oh, they're staring at my genitals in the shower. Like, that never happened. Like, it's... It's, it's not a it's, thing. It, that is yeah. just things that homophobes say to yeah. make a locker feel unsafe. And it, it's a yeah. locker room, I should say. Not a locker. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you and I, we played lots of hockey. We know that there was guys on our team who later in life came out as gay or felt comfortable later in life being honest about who they were attracted to for and sure did it affect anything how i felt about them absolutely would i not want to play a sport with them no i i still want to play it doesn't change a freaking thing for me yeah. at the end of the day my biggest concern is how how committed are you to the team how committed are you to play the right way are you going to exactly. show up practice or you can be part of the team i don't give a flying i'm all set i don't give a flying fuck yeah who exactly you are attracted to i really don't care at the end of the day it's about your personality and who you are as a person and, and your sexuality has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're good and you know especially especially as a younger player where you have everything to lose being authentic to who you are is uh is an incredible display of character and strength and to me if i'm on the nashville predators and i see and i'm a, i know i'm 23 i played and played for a couple of years and i see this kid do that i'm like 
why would I not want somebody with that conviction of character and that like fortitude and strength to come and play? Not in, and, and, and again, the market is even challenging. Like they're not in Vancouver. They're not in Los Angeles. They're not in New York. They're in Nashville, Tennessee. And yes, Nashville is co- cosmopolitan, but it is still in the American South where a lot of people have not, uh, you know, come to terms with the way the world is going. And it's just, even in that market, like that's a teammate that I would want a hundred percent. Here, here's, here, here's the first thing I said to Hannah actually about it. I said, if I'm a hockey player, hockey player is a lot about toughness. It's a little bit about being brash. It's a little bit about aggressiveness and, and the ability to go into tough places. And you're telling me that you're not going to look up to a guy who just turned to the world and said, Hey, I'm gay. You yep. have to deal with it. I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm yep. going to go play hockey. There's a guy who's epitomizes the type of leader you want in a room. Oh, for sure. Like, again, that fortitude, that strength, like, that's more than getting crushed in a corner. Like, that is that it's, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. The amount and of I, uh, you and I are lucky. We're not in, in the sense that we're, you know, we're straight men. We, we haven't gone through that challenge. We have, we don't know what it's like to, have to pretend to be somebody else around your friends or family and your yeah. lawyer. Like when he said it, when he, his quote today, and I, I don't know it right, like the quote word for word, but basically he said, you know, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm off lifting this because now I don't have to walk into every room and wonder who knows, does that guy know? Does this yep. guy know? He's done. He, it's up to everyone else to deal with it. Now he's just there to work. Yeah, and actually, I just pulled up the announcement here. One of the most poignant parts of it is he just says, I'm no longer scared to hide who I am. Like, I can just be, again, my authentic self. Uh, I believe that living my authentic life will allow me to bring my whole self to the rink and improve my chances of fulfilling my dreams. And if I'm Nashville, and if I'm the league, I'm like, dude, you like going back to a pure, if I'm the NHL in the league, pure dollars and cents, this guy is going to be my spokesperson. This guy is somebody who is, like we said earlier, talking the talk, but walking the walk and isn't afraid to do it. I, if I'm, if I'm Gary Bettman or whoever's marketing, you know, like in charge of league wide marketing and high up there, I'm like, listen, pro cup. If you want to be like, if you want to be in the spotlight like this, you're it. So let's go. Yeah, what I what I think is really interesting is you're, it's kind of an opportunity in two places. It's it's you're addressing one thing, which is everyone can play. It's something you've been on for a long, long time. And so a lot of organizations outside of the NHL have been pushing and pushing and pushing, mm-hmm. doing a lot of great work in communities to get to the point where, you know, a guy can feel comfortable saying this. And what's also great is it just removes the weight off his shoulders. It shouldn't be his responsibility to deal with other people's feelings about his sexuality. No. Nope. It, it, it's a 100% not his, it shouldn't be anyone's problem. Yeah. Right. It's, it, if it, if it, if it bothers, if it bothers you, that is entirely on you. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's it. Yeah. Take ownership of it and be done. I'm excited. I think, I think, you know, we saw the, what, the NFL player who, who revealed that he was openly gay earlier this year. We're now seeing an NHL player who's young. I would love to see in the next couple of years, some established players, five yeah, six years into a like career we, come out and feel comfortable being themselves because you'd have to think that would be a load off them too right like it's almost like you kind of have two lives it's it's, it's it it eats you up inside it absolutely does you know to to repress that just a, such a strong sense of who you are 
and to have to shelve it around these people who, like we've been saying, are supposed to be your brothers and going to going to war with them every night, you know, like yep. to not be that it's it's draining. So yep. yeah, I would love it if you know, like some some well established player came out and just said it was like, by the way, me too, you know, like hey, how great would that be? Yeah, I thought it was, you know, I just wanted to talk about it. I know we hadn't, we hadn't, I outlined that as a topic for today, but it just broke. And I thought, wow, what a, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about something heavy. Let's break it up with a little bit, something light, something enjoyable, something yep. that we're really excited about. Thinking of exciting things coming up, Dan, we know there's an expansion draft oh, coming no. up. A unique, a unique, scary, stressful time that hockey fans are having to deal with relatively regularly lately where a new Ugh. team joins in the, the owner spends 500 million plus on a franchise and they get a custom made expansion draft format that ensures that they get a playoff ready team the first year they're in and i want to say there's lots of stories around here the first one i kind of wanted to chat with you about dan i thought was incredibly shocking mm -hmm. price not being protected by the Montreal Canadiens. If I'm if I'm Ron Francis and I'm at Seattle Kraken and I see a franchise established star, possibly all-star keeper available, why wouldn't you follow the same format as Golden Knights and take a keeper like that? Well, the contract is massive. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe in addition to his contract that the Kraken would also be responsible for paying his bonuses, his performance million. bonus. Yes. Later this summer. So I guess what Mark Bergevin is hoping is that he uh, is banking on the fact that the Kraken, having just signed uh, Chris Dreiger, I believe, they just signed him for three years, yep. um, that they are not going to take that money. But that being said, you know, Francis is allowed, that he's said that they are going and have the have, have been given the green light to spend the cap. So they're not going to get a budget team. So... But are they gonna? You know, there's there's too many there's way too many players out there that are just like Tarasenko is out there, Eberly is out there, uh, you know, like uh, yeah, Domi is out there, Mark Giordano is out there. Like these are not, this is not the ragtag crew that Vegas assembled. The that that everyone thought Vegas was gonna be like this is. This is not a team of third liners with a couple second liners sprinkled in. There is some top tier S tier talent. And, but, you know, again, being said, we don't know. The Kraken have not revealed any of the, the details, like if they've been in negotiations with other teams. And I certainly hope that they're in negotiations with the Jets because I would not like to lose Dylan DeMello. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, there was a big. There was a big, for those who are Jets fans, there was a big debate about who we would protect. So in the expansion draft, you're only able to protect a certain number of players, and there's different combinations of players, forwards, defense, keeper, like goaltenders. I want to say keepers. But <laughs> you can only protect a certain amount of them. And so Winnipeg had a choice of either basically protecting a young guy they drafted in the first round. Stanley, up and comer, yeah. Up and comer versus a guy who is honestly the analytic analytical guys heart they love this guy dylan Demello is one of those players that is on a reasonable contract and he goes out there and he plays consistently good five on five hockey he's a good penalty killer and he's effective on the power play when he's had his opportunity and for those i know that there's a lot of uh, football fans uh, basically dylan Demello uh, was paired with another defenseman josh morrissey and single-handedly with paired with him without him 
Josh Morrissey was a like a statistical black hole without Dylan DeMello. But when they were paired together, they found success. Again, I don't think not to zero in on the Jets here. This isn't a Jets uh, show, but you know, I do think that uh, there will be some wheeling and dealing uh, in the back rooms between the GMs, not only with the Jets but with everybody else. Because looking at the names that are available for Seattle, I don't think there's some the way some of these names go. And that's one of the things that's really interesting too. This expansion draft is honestly such a nutty experience as a fan because while these lists are being confirmed about who is available to take and who is protected, the Seattle team, the GM and their their general manager can sit down and have conversations with other teams and strike deals that do not need to be announced until basically the day before or the day of the expansion draft, I believe. Yeah, uh, doesn't matter. I think it's the day of, but whatever. Yeah. Basically, so what we may or may not know is that they're exposing a player who we're going, oh my God, why did they expose this guy? Yeah. But in the meantime, there's already been a deal where they're sending a pick and a player as payment to Seattle to not take the player that they've exposed. Exactly, yeah. It's it's such a weird it's it's such a weirdly <laughs> unique experience as a North American you have to be a franchise league to have this type of thing happen. Yeah, it's so strange. Um, but I, I know that they they want to compete right away. So you can only assume that some of these big names that are available will be taken. Plus two, can we? there's another elephant in the room that complicates matters even more is that Chicago didn't end up, or not Chicago, excuse me, Colorado didn't end up uh, giving Landeskog the deal he wanted. That one was shocking to me, and that's not even an expansion draft thing. That's just no. the GM of Colorado. So here's something wild. I'm, I'm going to try and do a comparison, a little bit high-level sport. Imagine a, uh, a Kevin Durant on your team, one of the best players in the world, one of the best players at his position, decides you know his contract's running up, and he'd like to sign a new deal. And you wait a year to have this conversation, and now his contract is ending, and now you're asking him to take a big pay cut because you have other issues that you need to sign. And instead of locking down your best player, your captain, your leader, the guy you drafted who's been your room, your locker room leader for literally his entire career, and you're going to let him walk? It's insane. It's insane. I, I, if, I'm a, if I'm an Avs fan, if I'm an Avs fan, I'm livid. I'm livid, I would be... and, it, and I'm shocked because Sackick up to this point, their GM has been a fantastic Yes, he has. And like, as evidenced by the team in the last couple of years, like I really thought Colorado was going to take it in the West to be, to be completely honest. Uh, obviously that wasn't correct, but still, and you, you have to think that, you know, uh, if I'm, if I'm Ron Francis, I'm looking at Landis Gog being like, here's the captain I build my team around. Yeah. <laughs> and he's available, you know, like as a you UFA, it's like, what is going on Colorado? Come on now. You know, it's just absolutely bonkers. Thing- one thing I think Seattle has in their pocket too right now is not only are they a new franchise, you know, they have this beautiful new renovated arena, the new key arena that's going to be, they're going to be playing in, which looks unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but they have an owner who's willing to spend money to get things done. They have an owner who's willing to spend his own money to get things done. Mm-hmm. The city didn't spend on that arena. It was him. Part of that arena being renovated was they had to redo traffic around it. Do you know who paid for that? The owner of the Seattle Kraken. Right? Which like is this, how it this, should be. How it should be. But unfortunately, it's an exception to the rule, right? Yes. So I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm Ron Francis, I'm feeling confident. I'm feeling comfortable. And I'm feeling like I'm in the playoffs next year. 
I would, if I had to put a money on it, I would say absolutely 100% Seattle will make the playoffs in the 2022. So here, here's a question for you on this expansion draft. Are we going to go through this again? Are we going to go to 33 and 34 teams in this league? Because they keep talking about this. And at this point, it's starting to get too much. When you start breaking into the, the mid-30s, that's too many in a league. No, because, you know, it's like fans like rivalry. First of all, from a fan standpoint, I want to see more Winnipeg versus Minnesota, Winnipeg versus Chicago, Winnipeg versus Toronto, and then Winnipeg versus the Western team, the Calgary Edmonton, more than I want to see Winnipeg. And this is as a season ticket holder. Like, I'll still go see Winnipeg versus Columbus, but I'd much rather see Winnipeg versus Montreal or, you know, like those old, old school rivalries. You know, Seattle versus how are you going to get people excited about Seattle versus Carolina on a Tuesday night? You know what I mean? Like it's uh, I think I, I hope this is the last time we see it. I kind I, you know that when Vegas came in there, there was going to be another one because you need to have equal divisions, right? You can't have an odd number of teams. Mathematically it does make sense, but you know how long, like Quebec city will get a team. The question is when, and the question is, will it be new or will they, take somebody and i think at this point you have to do what winnipeg did and you have to take a team that's struggling because more than 32 teams like 32 teams make sense in a bracket it makes sense schedule wise you have two the way the nhl is laid out it makes sense in divisions to keep messing up with these numbers it's just yeah i but i don't think how north american sports are though right it's you know those owners are sitting there going we could get another half billion dollar fee for a team let's do it Right, it's it's that. I love that there's more jobs available for hockey players at the top level of the league. I think that's one of the things that people forget about is that these expansions actually give more jobs to players who may not have the opportunity. And I always think there is more top level NHL quality players than there is jobs available. So that was another uh, interesting thing that I just as a uh, a side note, Ray Ferraro posited the question a few days ago. Uh, I think it was right for it. doesn't matter. He posited the question is at what point does the top level talent start getting watered down? And at what time, at what point are you paying NHL prices? And again, for all the football fans out there, and I, I know you have a lot scooter. Um, it, I don't, I don't know what the prices of going to a game in, in Europe are, but like all in all, you're looking at a, at a hundred Canadian dollars ahead. So about 80 euros for a night at an NHL game per person. And that's, yep. that's usually just parking and entry uh that's not food that's not beer it's not a uh, souvenir like you know we would easily easily spend a hundred bucks 120 dollars you know a night at a jets game and that's j- like just a walk in the building and maybe have one drink so anyway uh at what point do you start having to be like i'm paying these prices and i'm basically seeing like a third of an ahl game you know Here's here's a here's a suggestion for you. I actually liked a shorter schedule. I was kind of hoping they wouldn't go back to an 82 game schedule and it would be more in divisional play because I thought I actually really kind of liked. I know it was an all Canadian division, so it was a little bit obviously kind of a dream for the Canadians in a sense. Like we were right. able to see these matchups all the time that mattered practically every game. But I'd like to see more interdivisional play and less cross conference play. If we're going to keep growing into this bigger league, I'd like to see more development of if within the division, close teams, teams that I can theoretically drive to to see a game, 
right? Right, right. And as we've said, that's sun up till sundown. Yeah, <laughs> not, and we mean drive. Like I mean, a full day of driving. But yeah, yeah. is it is it thirteen hundred kilometers less? That's a day's drive. Anyway, yeah. uh, but no, I, I don't know. Like I, I have a hard time with uh, a lot of the players this year. Said even that, even with the um, less like you know cross country travel in the Canadian division. They said that the travel was too difficult. I, I think we're going to stick to an 82 game season because it allows for more travel flexibility. Um, but I have no, I have no, uh, <laughs> no sympathy for that because they're flying in charter jets uh, that take off and land. <laughs> when they're they're compensated the team... pretty well as well. Yeah, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I've flown like 14 hours, gotten into some like hotel in Asia at one in the morning and had to wake up at 10 a.m. to do press for the gig the next day. Like I think in 2019, uh, we flew five times the most, the, uh, the average, the average NHL team. And this is like, I don't I, like when they start wanting about travel. I'm like, listen guys, like it's fine. You're fine. I don't think, but I don't think the league, the league sees a shortened schedule. Like you said earlier, North American money, uh, North American biz- uh, t- franchise owners want the dollars. 22 more games, 22 more nights of fans on the stands, 22 more nights of concession sales, of merchandise sales, of everything ancillary to uh, a hockey game that earns a franchise cash, which is why I don't think we'll see the 60-game season in the future. I I know I'm on a dream. I know I'm asking for the impossible. I'm telling telling the owners, listen, just make less money for the good of the sport, and they're they're not going to ever listen to that argument. That's why we barely see hockey players in the Olympics. Right. Yeah. Like every, every player you ask an athlete, would you like to go to the Olympics? Pretty sure you're going to get a yes. Most of the time, if not yeah. all the time. Oh, for sure. You ask an owner, can my athlete go to the Olympics, please? No, no. <laughs> Why not? Well, we don't want to pay the insurance. I don't want to pay the insurance on his contract, which by yeah. the way, I already have insured his contract on another insurance deal. But we can get into that. I, I, I'm probably going to have an episode about contract insurance one of these days because I think it's one of the things that people don't realize is be proliferating through sports yeah, at it's a crazy, wild. crazy level. But anyway, Dan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Hey, I really Scoots, appreciate you having you on. Thanks so much for having me. And it was nice to cover a range of topic uh, topics about the sport we love so much from the very serious to the very exciting and uh, everything in between. So uh, all the best to you and your viewers. And it truly has been a pleasure. And we'll see you next time. Well, Dan, before you run off, mm. where can people find you? I'm on Twitch uh, a few nights a week uh, as uh, the world opens up again. Um, now that w- people are vaxxed and waxed and ready for summer, uh, there's going to be more uh, events. So my Twitch schedule is going to be a little all over the place. But you can find me at twitch.tv slash madzergling. That's M-A-D-Z-E-R-G-L-I-N. I stream League of Legends and I also do live music. Uh, happy to be your background tunes uh, whenever you want. So come by, say hi. Um and I'm sure Scoots will throw out a little shout out in the chat. He's forgetting to say uh, it's a pants off dance off once a week. It's pretty fantastic. Correct. A lot of fun. <laughs> we have fun. We don't take ourselves too seriously. It's it's all good. Yeah. So big thank you, Dan. Um, I'll uh, definitely drop some links in the chat. And you guys, for those who are listening, big thank you for sticking around. This is episode two of Scoot Talk Sports. Thank you so much for listening. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time with me. 
You can find all the previous episodes on your favorite podcast app just by searching Scoot Talks Sports. You can also find us on YouTube if you're interested in watching the old video on demand. But hey, this episode is recorded live on Twitch Sports, and you can actually be part of the episode by following at twitch.tv slash S-C-O-O-T-R. That's Scooter. And joining us on Monday and Fridays at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can always connect with me on Discord, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to find out all the ways and all the links, just go to Twitter, search underscore S-C-O-O-T-R, and you can find my profile and click on the link. Let's talk soon. Thanks again so much for listening.